Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 76 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. The number 76 is my favorite number. I wore that in college. My cousin uh, wore that at uh, wore that as a right guard at uh, Virginia Tech. Yeah, and there's a long story behind why a center was wearing the number 76, but just, that's not for the show. <laughs> that is an happy, unusual. That's an unusual number. <laughs> it is. Uh, happy birthday to Mike Rathsack, who we've talked about in some of his cases. It's his birthday today per Facebook, so happy birthday to him. Uh, today we have another themes episode, this one, The Plain Meaning. We'll get into why that is, but all three cases that we'll cover today uh, are Illinois cases, and they all involve the plain meaning of statutes and contracts and other things. So you'll see that theme as we get into these three cases. The first case today is an Illinois Appellate Court Second District case, Herndon versus Bedrocks in the Cave, Inc., a loss of society case involving the Dram Shop Act, and the defendant, as you can tell from the name, was in fact the uh, party that's subject to the Dram Shop Act. We'll get into that, a very tragic case. The second case today is Illinois Road and Transportation Builders Association versus County of Cook, an Illinois Supreme Court case dealing with statutory and constitutional construction and a road case where the Illinois Supreme Court's textualist approach will be tested. The third case today is Secure Insurance versus Phillips 66 Company an interpretation case involving a blanket insured endorsement out of the first district that involves an assignment uh, by uh, the original insured, and we'll get into the details of that uh, when we cover that in the third segment. Well, they're not the insured. They're the proposed additional insured. Proposed so. additional insured, yeah. yeah. But they were spun off from the, the uh, Exactly. From the we'll insured. get there, so we don't we'll want to confuse folks. Yeah. So with that, let's turn to our first case today involving the Dram Shop Act. And the question here uh, primarily is, can a plaintiff recover? for loss of society under the Illinois Dram Shop Act, 235 LCS 5-6-21A, for the death of an unborn fetus. That is the question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court 2nd District decision, Herndon versus Bedrocks in the Cave, Inc., uh, comes out. In this case, a pregnant woman was killed by an allegedly intoxicated person and the estate of the woman brought an action against the various bars and owners who allegedly served the allegedly intoxicated person. Oh, we can't use AIP. Well, we go with the Judge yeah. Easterbrook rule. Okay. Well, and, and yeah, <laughs> just, just so we'll keep it clean, at least for now. Uh, <laughs> included in the suit was a claim for loss of society of the unborn child. The relevant portion of the statute is here. An action shall lie for injuries to either means of support or loss of society, but not both caused by an intoxicated person or in consequence of the intoxication of any person, resulting as here and above set out. Loss of society means the mutual benefits that each family member receives from the other's continued existence, including love, affection, care, attention, companionship, comfort, guidance, and protection. Family includes spouse, children, parents, brothers, and sisters. The action if the person for, from whom support of society was furnished is living, shall be brought by any person injured in means of support or society in his or her name 
for his or her benefit and the benefit of all other persons injured a means of support or society, end quote, very long uh, provision. So the question here is, does the unborn child exist as defined by the statute? We're, and, and as Pat will get into, we're not sure how, even if the unborn child existed, uh, had ever provided the elements of a loss of society, uh, but that's a question of a fact for a jury, not the question of law regarding whether such a claim can be brought in the first instance. One of the difficulties here that the plaintiff may have is the case is that the complaint was pled under the Wrongful Death Act, not the Dram Shaft Act, another cause of action created by statute that defines these elements differently. The plaintiff requested leave to amend the complaint if the court found the pleading deficient. Pat, with that, why don't you tell us about the oral argument in this case? So thanks, Dan. I, I, let's talk about these two statutes that one that's at play and one that is the source of the law that the plaintiff is trying to rely on. So you have the Wrongful Death Act, which allowed a cause of action that had abated at common law. In other words, if someone died as a result of someone else's negligence their, or, or any other claim, their, ca their uh, cause of action abated, their claim abated and it was done. So you have these Wrongful Death and Survival Act statutes that were passed that are in derogation of the common law. Likewise, Dram Shop is part of the regulation of liquor, and every state's got one of these things. Um, yep. And it's essentially to allow the liquor companies to liquor distributors to exist. Uh, in Illinois, the limitation is set each year as to what can be recovered uh, by the department by the Illinois Department of Labor. I think this year it's just above or around eighty four thousand dollars, which is not um, a whole lot of money. Which is right. a shockingly small amount of money, frankly. Um, one of the justices didn't seem to know the amount was above fifty thousand, um, and that was part of the criticism with the, the pleading. So let's, that gets us, that leads us right into the pleadings. So the complaint, the counted issue for the death of, uh, of, of the baby, uh, as a result of this accident was titled a wrongful death act. Yep. It didn't cite to the dram shop action and it, it, it cited for claims brought under the wrongful death act, like grief and something grief, grief and such, which are recoverable under the wrongful death act but not under the Dram Shop Act. In other words, not only are they under different theories, uh, loss of society versus all the claims that can be brought on wrongful death, there's different kinds of damage that can be sought and different people that can seek them. So this they, is a- they, they, serve, they serve different purposes, right? I mean, the Dram Shop Act, again, like you said, is for liquor, liquor uh, distributors and sellers to be able to be in business and have some limited protections against liability. Wrongful death has a different uh, purpose. It, it does. And so the definition of who is a, who is a, you could have, for example, there are claims brought under the Wrongful Death Act for, you know, children that are, that die in utero, take the Corey versus, uh, Tom, the Thomas versus Corey case we talked about. Right. But you also have, this is not quite wrongful death, certainly, but you also have wrongful birth. You didn't tell me that my child was going to be horribly disabled, that that child lived, and I'd sue you for that. So you, you have all, you know, that isn't this. Dram Shop is, is a little different, and it deals with, and I think the key language here is the other's continued existence is an unborn, and I believe in this case, non-viable fetus, Correct. doesn't exist for the purposes of losing society. And the trial court held that it did not and dismissed the claim brought on behalf of the uh, the family members who 
suffered the loss of this child. And what makes this Dan mentioned tragic, the, the mother dies, the baby dies, subsequently the father dies. So the only taker is, the, is another daughter who was living at the time. And one of the justices asks, well, who's going to recover for this? And, and it's because the husband's dead. It says, well, right. as the only living heir, she would take both individually and as the beneficiary of the state of her father, who has as one of its assets, the estate of the, of the deceased mother. So it's like building on just a horribly tragic situation. Um, and so, so that's one of the things that, that we've got here is this uh, uh, trying to figure out who the takers were. The judges, judges were a little confused by that. I think sure. that makes sense the way that counsel for the plaintiff explained who the takers were. I think that's accurate, what he described. Um, but I doesn't mean I think he's, he, I don't, I'm not sure they pled the right cause of action. And I'm not sure they have a cause of action because I don't know how a non-fiable fetus exists. And even as I said, as Dan said, even if it does, how does one lose the loss of affection of someone you've never met? I, I, I don't, I mean, they haven't been born. You haven't, how do you lose love, affection, care, attention, companionship, comfort, guidance, and protection of someone who is in utero, whether they're viable or not? Right. Um, they may be a living person and their wrongful death may be recoverable, though not outside, I know not under the DRAM Act, Right. If they died some other means by some other way, so they could sue, you could sue the driver of the vehicle for negligence, irrespective of the Dram Shop Act, for wrongful death of this unborn child, viable or not. That you can sue for. That's that's a thing. Um, but under the Dram Shop Act, to get these liquor distributors and owners of these properties, you can only go this one way, and I don't think that that's going to work. Um, but it's we we the court really struggled with how they're supposed to read this text, what the intention of the legislature was. Uh, plainly, the Wrongful Death Act and the Dram Shop Act have different purposes. The language reflects that because they are different in in, in language. You know, the Wrongful Death Act would allow the cause of action against the driver, the intoxicated person, for the death of of this unborn child, as I said, viable or not. But it doesn't allow or doesn't seem to allow an action against the, the liquor distributors and sellers for this same injury um, or similar injury. I should say not same injury for similar injury. Um, so good way to start off our day talking about plain, plain meaning, because that's what they were trying to, to get at. I believe it was Justice Hutchinson who was really aggressive in questioning plaintiff's counsel on this issue. Um, not because she didn't recognize the tragedy of the situation, but because she's trying to get at what the statute actually says. Um, and we've done this, actually, we've done the second district case first because Lord knows there may be an opinion that comes out by the end of the show. So we've always got to do the second district at the first available opportunity uh, because those folks uh, ha- can, can pump out a, can pump out a, a ruling very quickly. It's it's Sunday afternoon. I don't think we're, there's much risk, but anyway, Dan, anything else we need to add on this uh, Herndon uh, versus uh, Bedrocks and Cave case? Pat, Pat, you mentioned Justice Hutchinson, and she did express sympathy. She said this is a very sad and tragic case. I mean, right at the beginning when she was questioning, uh, but to your point, she 
did raise the issue that the legislature's never amended the Dram Shop Act, and so if they had not seen fit to amend it, uh, again, like you said, on the plain language and things, so I think that covers it. And This I, is I, entirely I, a creature of statute. It is. This entire cause of action is a creature of statute. They've built up the field. They've defined which kind of claims you can make. And this one doesn't appear to be on the menu, but we'll see. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with our second case before this one before the Illinois Supreme Court, Illinois Road and Transportation Builders Association versus County of Cook and the construction of a provision of an amendment to the Illinois Constitution. Welcome back to segment two of episode 76 of season two of the Podium and Panel podcast. And the question on the table is, what is determining the plain meaning of a statute, a mere canon of construction alongside the other canons? Or is it the threshold task of a court to determine the plain meaning and a court may use certain canons of construction to aid in determining that plain meaning? What role, if any, does legislative history and a voter's guide to a constitutional amendment play in interpreting the Illinois Constitution? Those are among the questions the Illinois Supreme Court will address when it decides Illinois Road and Transportation Builders Association, among others, versus Cook uh, County of Cook. A friend of the show, John Fitzgerald, argued this matter for the appellants and handled the matter also below. The Safe Roads Amendment to the Illinois Constitution, passed first by the General Assembly pursuant to the Illinois Constitution, and then approved by the people, provides as follows. So we're going to read again so we can get in front of us what, uh, what what we're talking about. Quote, and it's a longer section. We're just going to read the first section, which I think is really where the, the fight is about in this case. No monies. you got to love that word, no monies. Uh, there's a whole Seinfeld monies. bit about monies, and Elaine goes off on that, <laughs> including bond proceeds derived from taxes, fees, excises, or license taxes related to registration, title, or operation of use of vehicles, or related to the use of highways, roads, streets, bridges, mass transit, intercity passenger rail, ports, airports, or to fuels used for propelling vehicles, or derived from taxes, fees, excises, or license taxes, related to any other transportation infrastructure or transportation operation, shall be expended for purposes other than as provided in subsections B and C. The plaintiffs, a consortium of road builders, sued, claiming that certain taxes collected by Cook County, that's Chicago for those of you, that it's the the biggest city is is Chicago, uh, related to transportation are being used for purposes other than transportation. The trial court dismissed the claim, finding that the amendment allowed the use, uh, basically putting the money into the general fund, and the appellate court affirmed. The trial court also found that the plaintiffs lacked standing to bring the claim, but the appellate court disagreed with that particular finding. The plaintiffs contend that the amendment is ambiguous, or sorry, is unambiguous, but the county contends that the constitutionally mandated and unanimously approved voters' guide and legislative history show that the use of the taxes by the county, as it was prior to the amendment, was to be preserved and that the limitation was on the state, not the 218 Illinois home rule entities like the county. I uh, have long described the Illinois Supreme Court as a textualist court. This decision will test whether that is, in fact, the case. Um, Dan, why don't you tell us about uh, the oral argument in this case? Thank you, Pat. And this is a very interesting case. 
despite its mundane topic of roads and taxes, but it's really a fascinating case about the the law. It is. And and as Pat uh, mentioned, it includes a voter's guide. It includes um, the legislative history that we'll get into uh, with respect to one of the main sponsors of the bill talking about this. uh, He was questioned, said this does not address Cook County. Uh, we talked about canons of construction. There's a, much argument about that. The canon of absurdity, the canon of, of uh, you know, plain meaning, uh, and all kinds of things. Uh, as Pat said, this this case has to do with a, a huge amount of funds uh, for Cook County. Uh, as many people know, gas and other taxes in, in Cook County are higher than the rest of the state, um, and, and they're supposed to, according to this constitutional amendment, the intent was that this money would be used for transportation uh, arenas. And Amy Crawford, who was on the other side uh, arguing for the state, uh, the state's attorney's office, uh, is somebody I know from various arenas, a very effective counsel as well. As Pat said, John Fitzgerald was on uh, for uh, this consortium of plaintiffs. And the argument about standing had to do with whether these associations can, in fact, have standing to sue in these matters. We've talked a lot about standing and parties, and here we have associations. Um, uh, John Fitzgerald and Rebuttal talked about that to an extent, talking about how uh, they do in fact have standing for some cases. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I think that if uh, we listen to this, we've talked often, Pat, about this court, uh, the Supreme Court of Illinois, being a re- relatively cold bench. <laughs> not today. That, that was not in fact, not, not, not on this right. a- occasion. Uh, they were more like the Massachusetts uh, Supreme Judicial Court that we talked about on last episode uh, that had to do with COVID-19 and business interruption, uh, especially Justice Tice. Uh, she was very aggressive in questioning counsel on extrinsic evidence and the use of that. Uh, and Justice Garman, who was presiding as Chief uh, Justice Burke, was remote, along with others pushed back, uh, contending that the legislative history does not ever get reached if the statute is unambiguous, right, if on its face, it's, it's not ambiguous, then you don't get to legislative history. Um, and so uh, uh, fascinating arguments. Um, the, um, uh, w- w- one of the things that uh, Fitzgerald opened with uh, was, was this fundamental principle that he called it, that you cannot write in limits in the Constitution. Um, the, uh, uh, his argument was that you have to uh, amend, you have to enforce this Safe Roads Amendment as written. Uh, uh, there's enormous taxes that are paid to state and munis. Uh, The tax dollars have not met the needs. Uh, As Pat posted on on LinkedIn, I think one of the the, the strong arguments of the county uh, when they uh, advocated uh, was some practical and political considerations. Uh, Amy Crawford talked about the fact that there's already substantial money that goes to roads and transportation, and that if, in fact, the county has to use all these additional funds to go to transportation, that $200 million or whatever the number is uh, would, in fact, have to go then to uh, cut other programs to be able to fund the roads. Or raise taxes more is the claim. Or raise taxes more. Um, and and, and uh, that's a valid point. But, again, anybody who lives in Cook County and especially in the city of Chicago, I live in the northwest side in a very uh, uh, decent area, uh, but the roads are – like third world countries are becoming more and more. I mean, so the well, the point she also made though was that the county only maintains about five percent of the twelve thousand miles of roads inside the county, and the crumbling yep. roads in the city, 
light, I have a similar problem, especially this time of year between the salt and the snow and the rain, the roads fall apart. This is all, this is yep. all, uh, this is Lori Lightfoot's problem, not Tony Preckwinkle's fault. <laughs> well, well, right. It is. But, but again, uh, and you're right on that. We've talked about light poles in the past in the city of Chicago. We've talked about a lot of these types of safety and security types of issues. Uh, what, one of the things that I think was, was really at stake in this thing, um, and again, I, I don't, uh, you know, I wasn't able to find what was actually on the ballot or whatever, uh, but, but it was interesting because one of, the, one of the arguments that Crawford made was that the voter's guide uh, that went out to voters, it goes in the mail. And the voter's guide is constitutionally required for these plebiscites. It is. It is. It, it, it is. And for good reason, because, um, uh, but, but what she argued, and again, I, I, I don't know, uh, if this is in fact uh, uh, the case, uh, is that the actual full A through F of this constitutional amendment was not on the actual ballot. I can't believe that because my recollection is when I've gone in on these these referendums uh, for constitutional amendments and other things, is that it is in fact on the screen that, that you punch in and vote for. So I can't imagine that the state would not have Put what you're actually voting for. I, you know, this is not Congress and Pelosi with. Yeah, the, we have to pass it to find know, out what's with, there. Right. I right. mean, I, I, I have a but policy anyway. of voting always against the amendments because I think I think having the people vote on these things is a terrible idea. Uh, that's why we have representatives. Well, um, so I I, and, and I and that policy began when I lived in Florida and we had an amendment regarding pig crates that passed. Yeah. And it was Wayne Heisinger's wife who didn't, who wanted these. And maybe the humane thing is to have these crates that don't, that don't torture these animals. Maybe that's the right policy, but it doesn't belong in a constitution. It ju- it just doesn't. Right. <laughs> well, I was thinking about that with some of the stuff we have in our Illinois constitution. You know, these things just get longer and longer. Right. right. But in any event, what one of, one of the discuss uh, a big part of Fitzgerald's discussion and, and Crawford's and in, in response to it is that if you look at uh, subparagraph A, uh, there's no exemption. Um, Pat had read what that is. In subparagraphs B and C, there's extensive use of, of statutes and laws. Uh, neither appears in subparagraph uh, A, so uh, Fitzgerald's argument was you, you can't graft on those uh, pieces into uh, part A. Um, the... Um, uh, justices, as I mentioned, and as, as Pat mentioned, uh, pushed back on some of this uh, uh, legislative history and stuff. Again, the uh, Senate Majority Leader, who's, who was the primary sponsor of this bill, was asked directly, is this going to On the floor uh, during the debate. In the city of Chicago. Um, but in rebuttal, what Fitzgerald said, and I think this is a good policy as well, is, is that you, you can't go back to legislative history once the constitutional amendment's in place because what, what was actually voted on by the people or legislative changes in general. Pat and I've talked about legislative history in the past on this on the show. The danger of using legislative history is is that's not what appears in the actual bill, and it's the view of one person. And and so we don't know what the hundred and something people of, of the legislative body when this Safe Roads Act was passed, what all of them thought. Uh, uh, they may had all kinds of reasons for. why they voted for. Hey, the, right? the moon the moon came up uh, and and was three quarters, so I'm going to vote yes. That's my. I mean, who knows why they voted yeah. for it? And one of, one of the things you know, I just uh, I, I just uh, read a book about James Madison, and it talked about log rolling, which is uh, something that we don't see very much, at, at least at the federal level anymore. But log rolling is the is a process of putting things in bills or addressing different things so that you get enough votes to get it passed. 
piece of legislation, right, or, or, or initiative. And so uh, one of the things that's always at tension here is there's a lot of uh, groups that have home rule, as Pat mentioned, there, there, there's many of them. Uh, but Cook County and the city of Chicago have different rules because of the size and, and, and many things. And so downstaters and other people, for some reason, they often look at that and kind of, right, that's part of the reason they vote on certain things and how they structure certain things because, you know, Chicago rules the state. And, and so about half the legislature is in Chicago and, and, you know, 5 million right. people are in Cook County. So, you know, it, it's, it's about ha it's half the state essentially is in one County of the 102 counties. Right. And so, as, as I mentioned, uh, Crawford uh, made, made some effective arguments here, but the, 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 the challenge here is if, if the Supreme court uh, buys uh, Cook County's argument here, what happens is that you would invalidate this uh, constitutional initiative, and, and that's the, the result. Um, and, and that's probably, I mean, that, that's a big hurdle. Um, but but there, there were a lot of talks about other canons, including uh, the canon of absurdity. And again, in, in response uh, and rebuttal, uh, I think Fitzgerald did an effective job of saying, look, you know, this is, uh, uh, our, people are entitled to rely on the laws written. Uh, without fears that the court will add its own interpretation. Um, and uh, the, the court has held that anyone argues the, the language to be used is not the plain meaning, carries the burden of proving that that's the case and that that's not been done here. So this an interesting case, as Pat and I mentioned, on a mundane issue. Uh, but uh, sometimes uh, these are the most fascinating arguments because they deal with how our government and, and our constitution functions and, and uh, deal a lot with, again, plain meaning, statutory uh, and legislative intent. And, and so we'll see what the Supreme Court does in this. So, so I want to add, I want to finish up by talking more about the, 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 how this, you know, this fight over how this should be done procedurally. So counsel for the county referred to the plain meaning as like a canon. It's like, no, it's not a canon. Right. It's that's the goal. And you have certain things that assist you in determining what the plain meaning is so that you can determine if there's an ambiguity. What does an ambiguity mean? That means there's more than one reasonable interpretation. So obviously one of the canons that you use in that the service of that is the absurdity canon, is if it would reach an absurd result, that obviously can't be a reasonable interpretation. Likewise, you have grammar type canons, you know, the last antecedent, which doesn't really play a role here, but these kinds of grammar canons that help you understand what the plain meaning is. But if the plain meaning is clear, and susceptible to only one interpretation, one reasonable interpretation, meaning it's unambiguous, then you don't reach anything else. It's just like a contract. If the contract right. is plain and clear, you don't get to parole evidence. The voter's guide and the legislative history are like parole evidence. And you don't reach them right. if the, if the, the uh, contract or the uh, amendment in this case is unambiguous. So that's, it's really, and that applies to whether, no matter what the contract or what the statute is, that's the procedure. And that's the part that Justice Garmin and I think Justice Burke were really pushing back on. Uh, Justice Tice was insistent that you had to look at the legislative history and the uh, voters guy. Um, and I get her point. I, I, I do I take do. her point. I just think that's not how that's typically done. We'll see what the court does with it. Uh, I, I think we can expect a divided court in this case. 
no matter what happens. I think so. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with our third segment discussing Secura versus Phillips 66 Corporation. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Back for segment three of episode 76, addressing the secure case that Pat mentioned ahead of the break. In this case, uh, the question is, can a contract be assigned by the beneficiary of an agreement to name a party as an additional insured uh, fall within the scope of blanket insured endorsements that require an agreement between the insured and additional insured? That is a question that the Illinois Appellate Court will answer when it decides Secure Insurance versus Phillips 66 Company argued this past week. ConocoPhillips entered into an agreement with Premier Insulation to provide services at its refinery in Wood River, Illinois. That agreement required that Premier named ConocoPhillips as an additional insured. After the agreement was entered into, as often happens, ConocoPhillips split into two companies with the refinery coming to be owned by Phillips 66. The contract with Premier was assigned to Phillips 66, and eight subsequent agreements for services were entered into between Phillips 66 and Premier, but those agreements did not require naming Phillips 66 as an additional insured. Only the original agreement between ConocoPhillips and Premier had the requirement for Premier to name ConocoPhillips as an additional insured. It was that original agreement that was assigned. The policy required the following, quote, who is an insured is amended to include any person or organization for whom you are performing operations when you and such person and organization have agreed in writing in a contract or agreement that such person or organization be added as an additional insured on your policy, end quote. An employee of Premier was injured and Phillips 66 was named as the defendant. Phillips 66 in turn turned, tendered their defense to Secura who declined to def- uh, defend, asserting there was no agreement between Premier and Phillips 66. The trial court ruled in favor of the insurer and the insured appealed and that's what's before uh, the first district with Justices Hyman and Walker uh, on this case. Pat, tell us about oral argument. And Justice Paczynski too or Justice Coughlin? I think it was Coughlin. I I couldn't tell. She wasn't wasn't very active. Justice Hyman did did what Justice Hyman does and and, (laughs) and we'll get to that. but uh, and it's not a criticism of him. He just he 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 tells you where he stands. He's and, and you know and uh, uh, I put in my my uh, notes as I was listening to it. Him and Walker, I said they're not buying it. No, they're not <laughs> in brackets because well they're, they're not buying biased. it for different reasons. Uh, we'll get to they that. Are. All right. So right. let's talk. What's a blanket yeah. insured endorsement? <laughs> a blanket additional insured endorsement. So these endorsements are created because especially for construction companies. If, you, if every time you went on to a job, you had to add all the additional insureds, people would be left off. It'd be a nightmare. So insurance companies came up with these blanket insured endorsements that merely require that there be an agreement predating any incident that is signed between you, the insured, and the person or the entity 
to be an additional insured. And so the the it for obvious reasons, it has to predate the date of the injury. Um, and so the question here is, what is the effect of the assignment? Did Does the assignment of the contract by ConocoPhillips to Phillips 66 transmit the obligation of Premier to name it, name uh, Phillips 66, or the obligation to name Conoco to uh, fill, to, to name them as an additional insured. And while that may be the case, the real question is, the key language here in the policy is that you and such person and organization have agreed in writing in a contract or agreement that such person or organization be added. Well, there was no agreement that required the addition of Phillips 66 to the contract. There was one for ConocoPhillips, but not for Phillips 66. And the point Justice Hyman made is, well, then what the hell was the point of the assignment? When I assign my rights, when if I have a contract and I assign my rights to the contract to Dan, Dan steps into my shoes and takes on all my rights. Well, the question is, if one of those rights is a, is a right for me to be named as an additional insured on somebody else's policy, do I get that right absent a writing, or does Dan get that right absent Dan having agreed with the person who was supposed to name them as an additional insured? And let's just say Justice Hyman wasn't buying what the insurer was selling. Uh, Justice Walker, and the reason why we know what this language was was because counsel for the insurer had to read the language. Because uh, Justice Walker thought he, it merely had to be that the insured was performing services, not this second part that says, and you and or when you and such person or organization have agreed in writing uh, in a writing in a contract or agreement that such person or organization be added as additional insured. He left out the second part, um, which is really kind of key, which gets to the point that Justice Hyman is making about what this what work uh, and how much work the assignment is doing vis-a-vis this this blanket insured endorsement. So a uh, um, it, it's what does that mean? I really, I mean, I can see both sides. I I, I really can. Um, I I think that you've got to have a writing or an agreement between the two that requires it. I don't see the agreement here. I don't think the assignment does it, but I am almost certain the court will disagree with me. (laughs) Even though I don't think that's the right outcome. Uh, I think the trial court got it right, but I think there's a reversal here giving a preview of coming attractions. Dan, anything else to add to this? Uh, to, uh, by the way, this is a case of first impression in Illinois. Um, it, it, it's There's cases that are kind of like it, and both sides cited cases that are kind of on the other ends of the spectrum, but everyone agreed they weren't exact. And the Justice Hyman, you know, w- with rapier-like questions, got counsel for the insurer to have to admit to some things and then said, well, then you lose, basically. Uh, so it, it's... Uh, this is an issue of first impression, which makes it, which is really kind of amazing that this that this is an issue of first impression. But there we are. Just a few sure. things, Pat. One is, uh, you know, in my service to my clients, I often uh, negotiate a lot of these contracts, not not, not specifically like construction. But uh, one thing that was surprising and was asked, and, and there was no good answer, was typically in these contracts, uh, master service agreements, there's an assignment provision that says that. Either you can assign or you can't uh, the contract, you know, to either an affiliate. Well, I'm sure there else. was an assignment, but that uh, that uh, that from the insurer's perspective wouldn't make 
an agreement between Philip 66 and uh, Premier. That was the insurer's position. Well, but but my my point would be that that would be the written agreement uh, for assignment by Premier, mm-hmm. if if they gave notice in writing, and and they accepted it. Um, also, here is is we have an interesting situation. We've talked about some on this show holding companies and spinoffs and and successors, and again, really not raised here. I, they they must not have briefed it, but interesting issues there because this was a spinoff, and so you know are they are they still the phillips conoco but this is the branch that now yeah. you know what i mean like that there wasn't talked about um so again some interesting issues here like you said i can see both sides and kind of uh it'll be interesting to see with the court i think you're right that uh, it may not be the right answer but i do think we're getting a reversal here from justices walker and hyman's uh, questioning gotcha so that takes us to our prediction sure to go wrong um we are, Dardan at least, is 99, 16, and 7. I am 97, 18, and 7 following the vaccine cases that came down uh, on Friday where they stayed the um, OSHA rule and allowed the CMS rule to go forward. The, the uh, OSHA rule was stayed 6-3 with the three more conservative justices in the majority and a vigorous dissent from the more liberal justices. And then 5-4 on the CMS rule with justices, or the Chief Judge and Justice Kavanaugh joining the more liberal justices in finding that CMS could put this restriction and a dissent from uh, Justices Barrett, uh, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch stating that CMS did not have the authority that they were exercising. Uh, Dan, anything to add on um, these obviously very important cases? No, other than that, that the algorithm could have afforded us additional wins. I had predicted, I think, at least on the show and subsequently, uh, six, three, and five, four decisions the way they came out in these things. And so, just listening to the oral arguments, very clear from where people were headed. Yeah. And as we've talked about, Ju- Justice Kavanaugh especially is is a very don't play poker. He should never play poker <laughs> because he would uh, be out of uh, he'd be out quickly. He'd be out of his house. Yeah. So that brings us to our uh, prediction sure to go wrong for today. Uh, let's start with um, the Herndon case. I, I think this gets affirmed. Yeah, I think it gets affirmed. I just don't see how uh, the Dram Shop Act, and as we talked about, I just don't see any other outcome in that case. I, I agree. Uh, Illinois Road Builders, uh, I think that gets reversed. I think it's split, but I think right. it gets reversed. I think it's I, I think it's reversed. And then I've already um, said what I think question. on Secura. I think that's a reversal too. Right, I agree. With you okay, there. well that brings us to our rule of the week, um, and we've got us. Uh, this is also going to be the subject of my column for the week in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Um, going to play a segment from Manganji versus Root, and our fa- one of our favorites, Judge Easterbrook, doing Judge Easterbrook things. Uh, and giving a advocate a very hard time. So with let me get let me get this queued up and you can listen. My name is Ed Bielski. Uh, I'm an attorney who represents Scotty Mangandi with regards to this matter. Although it's not permitted necessarily outlined in the rules, uh, I have uh, a cross appeal that I would like to uh, reserve one minute of time at the end for rebuttal. Discuss this cross appeal now because I have serious doubt whether there is 
surgically based on a Rule 54B partial final judgment by the district court. Rule 54B partial final judgment is permissible with respect to any given litigant only if all claims with respect to that litigant have been resolved. In other words, for this appeal, only if the city is 100% out of the case in the district court. Is that condition satisfied? Your Honor, my understanding of the application of Rule 54B would be that they are distinct issues, not that they are all resolved. No, that's not correct. It is particular claims with respect to all parties or all claims with respect to one party. You're using the with respect to one party branch. So I wish you would answer my question rather than quarrel with the basis of my question. Are all of the claims against the city fully resolved in the district court? No, they are not, Your Honor. In the district court, they're... So that's a cross appeal that's going to be dismissed. So let's talk about this. So there's actually two rules of the week. There's Rule 54B, that's the federal rules, and Supreme Court Rule 304A of the Illinois Supreme Court rules. Which we've covered before. And this distinction is one I really did not pick up on before. In Illinois, it's some of the claims against some of the parties or all the claims against some of the parties, but not all the claims against all the parties. In federal court, it is all of the claims against some of the parties or some of the claims against all of the parties. So if there's one claim that goes out against every party, you can appeal that. And if you've got all of the claims against one party, then you can appeal that. But not if there's like three claims against a party and only one of them goes out. You can appeal that in Illinois. You can't appeal that in the federal court, at least not in the Seventh Circuit. And looking at the rule, I think that's the right reading. But that's what it is in Illinois or in federal court. Dan, anything? And as we've talked about, Pat, no, other than one of the things that's great about this podcast is as we listen to oral arguments, occasionally we come across these things that neither of us know. And sometimes when we post on LinkedIn or have discussions, others really weren't that familiar. So it's a good learning experience sometimes. And Easterbrook is always, you know, when he says something from the bench, as Pat said, you look at the rule. But he pretty much has a good handle on the rules and how the Seventh Circuit applies them if nowhere else. Exactly. The Seventh Circuit can be idiosyncratic, to say the least. All right. Now, with that, we're going to have the joke of the week, also offered by Judge Easterbrook. So here we go. So, so some levity at the beginning of the argument. But no, no acronyms. He did not use that. No, he did not. He's a general. He's a generalist. <laughs> he likes his comedy general. Yes, exactly. So, uh, yeah, Judge, Judge 
uh, Easterbrook cracking wise at the beginning of an argument um, <laughs> and having a good time with it. So with that, Dan, a little bit of a chuckle. Uh, that brings us to the close of the show for the week. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we'll see everybody next week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.